Moscow, and today we're here with Nathan Nunn, who is a professor of economics at Harvard University. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Um, so today I'm, I'm really excited to talk about an article that you wrote for Science, and the article is called The Historical Root of Economic Development. And um, what was so exciting about the article for me was that I teach 10th grade and 12th grade, but I used to also teach ninth grade. And so for those two years of global history, like the overarching question that we all are asking is why are some countries rich and other countries poor? And you talk about that in this piece. It was fantastic to read. And you also talk about why this is a, an important question to ask. So I was hoping what we could do is we could talk first about when this great divergence happened. And then maybe in the second half of the conversation, we can talk about, about what policymakers can do with this information. So if you look at the data, you basically see roughly after 1500 is when you start to see some differences emerge in the relative income levels of different regions of the world. And so that's uh, roughly a point in time in which there's a period of massive globalization where the old world, so in other words, Europe, discovers or comes into contact other parts of the world, so the Americas, Africa, Asia. And so for the first time, you have these different regions rough coming into contact with one another. And so, and so there were a bunch of events that proceeded subsequent to that. And yeah, many, many events, we can't talk about all of them, but mm -hmm. uh, a big one that particularly Americans are most familiar with uh, is what's called the three corner trade. And so this is where uh, goods are manufactured in Europe, then they're brought to Africa, and they're actually traded for human beings, so slaves, which were captured uh, within Africa by other indigenous populations, sold to Europeans, and then the Europeans brought the, slave to the slaves to the Americas. And then in the Americas, there was a population of indigenous peoples, which were, because of disease and a bit of warfare, were mostly killed off after Columbus arrived. A lot of vacant land, which was particularly good for growing things like sugar, tobacco, cotton. Mm -hmm. uh, and these plantations were established by Europeans and their descendants. And then the Africans were brought to work on the plantations as slaves. Then those raw materials were brought to brought to Europe where they're then manufactured. So that's the final leg of the three-corner trade. And so the upshot of all of this is Europe became very rich, Africa became very poor and kind of at subsistence basically. And different parts of the Americas fared differently. So the US and Canada did better. Other places in Latin America were somewhat prosperous but highly unequal. Yeah, so that's kind of the three-minute version of what I would mm -hmm. say was is the history of, yeah, of the divergence Mm -hmm. Do we have any evidence, I mean, it seems obvious, but do we have any evidence now that shows that Africa is suffering, particularly in the places where the most people are being enslaved and, and brought to the Americas? Do we have any evidence that that somehow impacts the economics of Africa today? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So it turns out when I was a lot younger in grad school, uh, we didn't have any evidence mm. and I would read work by African historians so people like John Fage would say oh no no it happened so long ago it, that can't still possibly explain anything mm -hmm. and then others like Walter Rodney would say no this is the reason for Africa's underdevelopment it's by far the poorest continent of the world and so what, what I did was collected data from a bunch of old historical archives and books and primary and secondary sources to try and find out 
uh, find evidence of where these slaves that went to the America, where did they come from? And specifically, what was their ethnicity? And so their ethnicity was often recorded because it was an important characteristic mm. that affected their value. And then you can calculate measures of how many people were taken from different regions of Africa. Mm -hmm. And if you line that up with income data today, you find that today the regions that are the poorest are exactly those regions uh, of Africa that had the most slaves taken. And even within countries, uh, you find the parts of the country that are the poorest are exactly the parts of the country where the radiary, all these sorts of things that led to the capture of slaves. Uh, took place. So we do have harm, actually, mm. uh, of that. And I'm, I'm wondering why there's such a difference in terms of development then between, there's a question that the kids ask a lot, between North America and South America then. According to existing research, an important difference was the amount of slave use. So having a slave plantation is not as bad as what Africa experienced, mm -hmm. where it was complete lawlessness, a breakdown in law, law and order, capture, killings. So where there were plantations, there was some law and order, but it wasn't equal. You know, there wasn't equal freedom and liberties. And so that's why Latin America isn't quite as poor as Africa, but it's mm -hmm. not quite as rich as Canada or, you know, the northern parts of the United States, which didn't, didn't have slavery. So they had property rights and greater equality. And mm -hmm. so, so I think it's slavery and things like, you know, it's not only slavery in Spanish Latin America. They had this system called Mita. It was a forced labor system where indigenous populations were coerced to give one seventh of their labor to work in gold and silver mines. And so, but it was, it was activities like that that caused inequality and inequality is not good for economic growth or economic development. I don't know how important this question is, but it's a question that I've always wondered about. And I don't know if there's a division within development economics, but do you consider slavery as a part an important part in the development of capitalism, or is it something more like feudalism? And it's maybe it's part of the reason that South America is so poor is because they, they didn't have capitalism in the way that maybe the Northern States, United States had. Uh, that's a good question. So it's tricky because in the academic literature and in the popular world or the regular world, people use these terms and it's often not clear what we mean by them. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's hard. It's hard for me to answer. The way I think of it is it depends if capitalism by capitalism, you mean free markets and that's different or could be completely unrelated to freedom of opportunity for everyone and mm -hmm. equal ability for everyone to succeed in life. And I think that's really the difference. Uh, and there's recent work done today by a number of scholars uh, at Harvard, for example, just showing that people from different racial backgrounds uh, have different opportunities within the U.S. That's not surprising. And they're less likely, for example, to be inventors and to patent things. And that's particularly important because when you create knowledge, everyone can benefit from it, right? And so that's something that helps, helps everyone. And if there's big chunks of the population which don't have the opportunity or the ability to succeed and create those benefits for society, then that economy is going to do worse. And so hmm. I think whatever labels you want to put on it, that's what I think is happening in many Latin American societies where you had slavery. And so you didn't have ability for big chunks of the population, which could have been 80, 90%. And even today when there's not equal access to you know, good schooling or to you know, basic public services for big chunks of the population, you're just not giving that part of the population the ability to succeed and to do good things for society. And that doesn't help 
you know, that's, mm. that's bad for growth overall. Yeah. Would it be safe to say that a lot of the income inequality we see here in the United States today may actually be bad for growth? Yep. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think there's a lot of theory behind that and empirical evidence. And I think most economists would, would agree with that. Yeah. And I think the reasons that we don't have policies that promote greater ability for opportunity and opportunities for everyone in nature, it's not because there's not an economic benefit. So, so I have two questions left. One is, where does yeah. Asia fit into this story? There's a big literature about you know, what's going on in Asia. India is an interesting example, but also China. And people have studied, you know, there's different interactions that China experiences relative to other countries and countries in Southeast Asia. And the evidence seems to be kind of mixed. So mm. we can't say that colonialism, all contact with Europeans was bad. So there's some studies which have looked at, okay, when there was more contact with, with Europeans, are, are those places less developed, but other studies have found, oh, when Europeans, for example, set up sugar plantations in Indonesia, mm. those places where the plantations were are, are richer. So it's still a bit of a debate. It's easiest to understand the slave trade, that that was really bad. The industrial revolution, which benefited from the slave trade, that was great. And then kind of the intermediate uh, cases where there was European colonization, some extraction, but then some, also some investment. So that would be like India, for example, mm -hmm. lots of Latin America. It's really hard for us to understand what we call the counterfactual. So what mm -hmm. would development be like without? And, and some studies find, you know, uh, show your contact with the Europeans had benefits and some studies find it also had costs. So, mm -hmm. so that's, yeah, that's how I characterize where India and India fits in and, and mm -hmm. a little bit China, but there's less, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, less contact, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, finally, how could we use history to, to inform policy? Yeah, so that's one thing I've become particularly interested in. And so the history thing is a little bit academic. It's like, well, let's just look at the past to try and understand it. But there's mm -hmm. some great examples recently about understanding history and how that helps us to move forward with policy. So I think the best example is about health and medicine around the world. So we've made huge, huge gains in recent years in understanding medicine and vaccinations and treatments for different diseases. And so, you know, polio vaccinations is a perfect example, or even how to deal with Ebola. And what development economists and health professionals are finding is they'll, they'll go into a place, they'll have the solutions about mm -hmm. how to make the population healthier, and the population will just refuse uh, mm. these things. So that has happened with polio vac vaccinations, for example, mm. or, or help during the Ebola crisis. And some researchers have asked, well, why is this? And it turns out that the answer lies back in time in history. And that's during the colonial period, the colonizers were trying to do the exact same thing. And so they were trying to eradicate sleep, uh, something called sleeping sickness, mm. which is a disease spread by uh, a fly called the tsetse fly. The thing is, during the colonial period, they were pretty heavy-handed. There was a lot of force used. They would line people up at gunpoint. They would test them through spinal taps. They gave mm. them drugs, uh, this one drug called Atoxyl, which it turns out makes 20% of people that take it visually impaired or blind. Oh, my God. And so these are people's parents and grandparents that experience this, mm -hmm. these Europeans, white people coming in with their medicine. And now this, in their minds, something similar is happening, happening now where international mm -hmm. health workers are coming in and telling them. And from their perspective, they see 
somebody gets sick, they go to the hospital, then they die. So, mm -hmm. you know, what's happening and is the hospital causing them to die and should we trust medicine? And so these scholars showed that exactly where these colonial medical campaigns went free, when they went frequently to a place, today those people have less trust in medicine and they're more mm -hmm. likely to refuse things like HIV tests vaccines for their kids. So that tells you, one, is that these populations aren't just irrational or uh, unintelligent, that actually there's a complete logic and they're perfectly, you know, it's perfectly fair that they mm -hmm. have a suspicion and that we need to do more than just say, you know, line up for a needle and then wonder why they're not, you know, lining up to, mm -hmm. to take for, for this medical treatment. We need to do more to educate them and to overcome the legacies of the past. So I think that's just uh, one example of well, how knowing the history tells us moving forward, what policies uh, do we need to implement to try and fix things? Mm -hmm. And I imagine maybe more foreign aid and, and maybe even reparation? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a whole other question is the whole literature that I discuss in the paper, a big chunk of that for decades is showing that events in the past, they could be hundreds of years ago, even some studies showing things that happened thousands of years ago, have some effect and you can quantify it on economic incomes today or economic welfare. So if you did think that reparations are the best way to do this, uh, having the evidence is important. If, for just as an example, slavery in the US, if all of the impacts of slavery have died out and those alive today aren't affected, then the case for reparations is much weaker. Uh, but the evidence shows that actually uh, slavery has effects that continue to linger until today. And you can show that scientifically or statistically. And so, and so I think we need to understand more. Is reparations the best way or can we do other things that are even more structural? Universal healthcare, high quality public schooling, better policing, these sorts of things. Or is reparations the best way to go or some combination of both? Please remember to go to our website, acorrectionpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes. And please go to iTunes to give us a rating. It helps other people find A Correction. Finally, please don't hesitate to let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. 